Let's just stab our hearts, shall we? Father, once again, we thank you for the opportunity we have just to turn to your word. And Father, this evening, we pray that you speak to us powerfully through your spirit. Uh, Father, this is such an important subject as we look at the topic of prayer. And Lord, how it should impact us. Uh, Lord, how it should have such a profound grasp and uh, an effect on our lives. Um, so Father, we pray that you give us now open ears and hearts that are ready to receive. And Lord, as your word goes down into our hearts, Lord, may it bring forth fruit. Uh, Lord, we ask it that you would be glorified in our lives. Lord, we do thank you, we honour you, we glorify your name. Uh, Lord, thank you for the privilege and freedom we have to meet together like this. And uh, Lord, we just commit this time to you now for your glory in Jesus' name. Okay, so we've been going through the Gospel of John um, over the last uh, few sessions. We've been looking at the, the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, typically, we've said that the Gospel of John is divided into these two major sections, really. We have chapters 1 through 11 that cover the first three and a half years, and then chapters 12 through to 21 cover what we refer to very often as Passion Week. It's just that last week. It's an incredible portion of John's Gospel devoted just to this one week. And it's interesting to note the things that John leaves out in his, his desire to include the things that he does. Now that's just a, a summary, I don't expect you to be able to read all that text from there at a distance, uh, but that's just a summary of Passion Week, um, starting, um, on the, as you're looking at it, on the left, uh, with uh, the, the Sabbath, the Saturday, the night. As it gets to the evening, Jesus arrives at Bethany. And uh, there he has an evening meal. Um, that day goes on, and that's what John records for us in chapter 12 of his Gospel. Um, and then we go through um, on the, uh, what would be the Sunday, the triumphal entry. It's one of the few things, things that tradition has actually got right, Palm Sunday. It was actually on a Sunday. And uh, that can be verified by, by lots of uh, digging and, and looking at the way this thing actually fits together. But it does fit together perfectly. And on the Sunday, um, as I say, the triumphal entry is when Jesus then rides in on the donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel 9 uh, and also Zechariah as well. An incredible um, portion of scripture. And John actually records that for us. But then that's where he kind of breaks off because the next thing that happens the, the next day, um, which kind of for the Jews would begin on the Sunday evening as their, their new day begins, going through the Monday to Monday evening, uh, that's the day typically when Jesus was going to and from Bethany every day, which is where he was staying for this week, uh, Bethany being just outside Jerusalem. Uh, that's when they pass the fig tree and the fig tree is cursed on that day. The following day, they pass back by and they notice that the fig tree is now withered and they comment on this. But interestingly, Tuesday, which would have been the 12th on this particular um, Jewish calendar, on that day is when Jesus gives what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Now, John doesn't give us the details about that, which is quite interesting because the other Gospels kind of make a big thing of that. But it is such a, a foundational portion of Scripture that the whole Olivet Discourse found in the three other Gospels to understanding the events that will lead up to Jesus' return. And I think it's quite interesting because if you knew you had just a few days left, you would tell the people closest to you the things that matter most. And Jesus does just that. He gives this information about um, the whole range of prophetic events that we are expecting to see. If, as some people today in the church are suggesting, that's not important, why would Jesus spend all his time on it on this particular occasion? Um, but he does, on, as I say, on the 12th. Uh, we then get to uh, the evening on the Tuesday. Uh, that's when... 
they again, they go back out to Bethany and they have this meal. And Mary's there and she pours this costly perfume on Jesus' feet. And that just outrages Judas. What an extravagant waste of money. Some commentators will suggest that the, the value of it could have been up to a year's salary. Well, are you imagine going and buying some perfume for your wife that cost you a year's salary? Can't even think of it, to be honest. It's, you know, but this is what was being extravagantly poured on Jesus' feet. And you can see why Judas was so incensed by this, because he's thinking, well, actually he's thinking he could put the money in his pocket. But the excuse he uses is that it could be given to the poor. But as a result of this, Judas then goes out, goes to the chief priests, the Pharisees, and starts plotting this betrayal of Jesus, which is 24 hours later. It wasn't a, a long planned thing from Judas's point of view. It was a very quick, just a you know, kind of a, he just snapped on that, that evening, on what we refer to as the Tuesday evening there on the 12th. Um, and it was the following day, the following evening, that he comes back with the, the band of soldiers and everything else. The Wednesday, the 13th, that's the day um, that the Jews would refer to as the first day of unleavened bread. Now, in the evening on the Wednesday, uh, is when the Passover will begin as it becomes, in the Jewish calendar, the 14th. That's when Passover will begin. And unleavened bread was to be eaten for seven days, beginning at sundown on, for them, what we would refer to as the 13th, but as their 14th begins. Now that's quite significant because we can get quite confused with the terminologies used in Scripture. Uh, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay, but we also have... Um, the first day of unleavened bread. Uh, we also have the feast of Passover, and we also have the feast of Passover. Now they may sound like the same thing to you, but actually there's a difference because in um, Luke 22 verse one, Luke will tell you there that the feast of unleavened bread was actually referred to as the feast of Passover. So we start to find these terms used interchangeably, and the context denotes what's being referred to. There's a, a whole study on this if you want to find out more. We then get to the evening then, and uh, this becomes the evening uh, when Jesus has sent his disciples on ahead to go and prepare this upper room, and they go and they find it exactly as he'd said, and uh, then they sit down and Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, and again, by the Jewish law, the custom, this had to be on the 14th, so as that evening begins. So that's when we now get this upper room discourse, this longest uh, recorded uh, speech by Jesus to his disciples, this, if you like, intensive training program where he goes through and really lays out what is expected of his disciples. Okay, and that then, we get to the end of that, and that leads us into John 17. So now all of that training, if you like, has been dealt with. Jesus has uh, given the instruction, and now we get to this incredible prayer that Jesus prays, which is what we're going to be looking at this evening. John 17, verse 1, then we read, And these words spoke Jesus, now those words being all that we've been looking at over the last uh, few studies, um, but all of the upper room discourse. Uh, these words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. Now, before we actually get into the, the, the nitty gritty of what he actually prayed, uh, it's, it's beneficial for us just to have a quick look at uh, some other things. I mean, often. We refer to um, the, the Lord's Prayer as that passage in Matthew 6. Um, that's the, the, the portion we often refer to. Um, really, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that the Lord prayed. The other prayer, if you like, is the disciples' prayers. The, the prayer that was given for the disciples. In Matthew 6, Jesus has said to the disciples, after this manner, pray. In other words, 
when you're going to pray, this is how you are to pray. Okay? Not to be vain repetition, as is so often the case. And uh, people talk about praying the Our Father. That's not the way we're to treat it. Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you a model from which you are to pray. This is the basis for our prayer life. And what's interesting is that Jesus himself, as we go into chapter 17 now of John's Gospel, uses this very same model that he'd given to the disciples. And we're going to see that he actually prays specifically for the disciples, both the disciples then and all that would follow after them. It's really a a rare glimpse and insight into Jesus' prayer life. It's a very intimate moment between him and the Father. And it really reveals his shepherd's heart. Um, the heart that he had for his own and uh, tells of his love and concern for you and for me. It's a very incredible passage as we look at the love as, as um, Jesus is knowing all that's about to happen to him with the betrayal and um, the, the floggings. The, this had all been prophesied in Isaiah that he would go through these things and obviously ultimately the crucifixion, that he would die taking upon himself the sins of the world. He stops at this point and praise for the disciples then and for you and I. Incredible. But we've also seen another interesting model being fulfilled here. Jesus, we know, is uh, our high priest. Uh, we're told 14 times in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus now actually assumes that role throughout his ministry. There's various other things he'd done, but now he really moves into that role of being high priest for us. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, we read there about the Day of Atonement. That was the one day that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he'd then make sacrifice on behalf of the nation. Jesus now is in that kind of position. He's assuming that role. In Leviticus 16, we find as part of the high priest's um, preparation that they would wash themselves and put on linen garments prior to, to going in and doing the, the, that which they did. And it was in preparation, obviously, to offering up this, this incredible atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus now does likewise. Adam Clark, in his commentary, makes uh, this comment. He says, This Christ appears to have imitated. Uh, he says, He laid aside his garments, girdled himself with a towel, etc. And he goes on to say, There's no room to doubt that he and his disciples had not been at the bath before. So Adam Clark's suggesting that Jesus just as the high priest would have done, cleanses himself in the lead-up to this. The high priest then, back in Leviticus 16, would then address a solemn prayer to God. And that's exactly now what Jesus does. First of all, the high priest would pray for himself. And we'll see that Jesus does that in the first five verses. Then he would pray for the sons of Aaron. Okay? Jesus then imitates this in praying for his own disciples. And then the high priest would pray for all of the people. And again, Jesus seems to imitate that by praying for the church, all who would believe on him through the, the preaching of the apostles and their successors. Okay, so that's the, the kind of the breakdown. We have verses 1 to 5, and then verses uh, 9 to 19, and then 20 uh, to 22. In the book of Hebrews we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, if you want to make a reference and look at it uh, at your leisure, Hebrews 9, particularly verse 2 through 14, just talks again about Jesus being this high priest and all that he accomplished for us. But clearly here, we find that Jesus is, is, as it says verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are. The one that we're going to see praying for his disciples and for us now understands. He's been there. He understands what we're going through. We just um, turn our attention now for a moment just to this model prayer that Jesus gives us in Matthew 6, um, verses 9 through 13. And we're familiar with it, but let me just read it anyway. It says, Jesus says, After this manner, therefore pray you, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So that's the prayer. We're very familiar with it. But that's the prayer that Jesus says is to be this model. After this manner, we're to pray. Now it's interesting because we see that this disciple's prayer actually echoes the heart of the law. Now, the law declares God's holy standard. We're talking about the, the law being specifically the Ten Commandments. Um, and we can actually thus conclude that this prayer is all about holiness. And actually, as we dig into it, we find that's really what Jesus is driving at. That's really one of the, the key purposes of prayer. Uh, it's been said before that, that prayer doesn't so much change the circumstances, it changes us. It changes the way we address things, the way we view things. Now, that's not to say that God through prayer won't change the circumstances but so many of the issues and problems we perceive are about the way we look at the situation rather than the situation itself take for example the children of Israel before the Red Sea seems like an impossible situation but it was their perception and their belief in what God can actually do that caused the the anxiety and the the issues there Um, you take Peter on the Sea of Galilee, walking out to Jesus. You know, to start with, he's fine. And then all of a sudden, he looks and considers his circumstances and he starts to sink, he takes his eyes off Jesus. And again, just to illustrate that so often it's our perception rather than the circumstances that needs to be be addressed. And that is much of what prayer accomplishes as we go to the Lord. And we'll see that as we go through. But just look at this, this incredible model we see. Now, Matthew 6, 9-13, again, this is verse 9. It starts, After this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father. Okay, the Ten Commandments, we find, start, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God addressing Israel as a father figure. The same kind of idea. And you'll see this build as we go through. We then find which art in heaven. We then find in the Ten Commandments, the next commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Again, our Father, which art in heaven. And the prohibition or the the, the thing that God speaks against uh, in the second commandment is making any likeness of anything that is in heaven because that's where God is and um, God is very jealous of his own nature and character and we're not to try and represent him in ways that we may choose we then have hallowed be thy name and the third commandment thou shalt not take the name 
of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Thy kingdom come. And we then find that the, the next commandment is the, the commandment about remembering the Sabbath day. It's all about this rest, if you like, that we're to enter into the kingdom. That's what is really being referred to, that we're to enter into this rest. Again, uh, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, and thou shalt not do any work. The kingdom will be an age when we're to rest from these labours. Then we have thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And there we have the next part of the Ten Commandments. Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. Again, this is looking at God's will being done. God would have us being obedient to our parents, that um, we would carry on in the, the, the manner that he would have us. That again, this, we're told that this is the first command with a promise. It's God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we have, give us this day our daily bread. Now, okay, you can argue this doesn't necessarily sit in the same order, but the same ideas come out here, because give us today our daily bread. Well, we have thou shalt not steal. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Thou shalt not kill. And lead us not into temptation. Thou shalt not commit adultery, but deliver us from evil. For, that shall not, for thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour. And then concluding, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. And ending there, thou shalt not cover thy neighbour's house, uh, thy neighbour's wife, nor his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, uh, his ass, or anything that is thy neighbour's. So you see there is this kind of correlation between what we have in the law and that prayer that Jesus gives us as a model. I just share that with you because I think it's an interesting uh, aside. But um, getting back in into uh, chapter 17, just read again. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Now, along the top, you'll see on the screen there, we've put the, I've put the headings of, as we go through what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, the, thing, the, the, the sections that apply. And we'll see that Jesus sticks to this model as he prays this prayer. Now, Jesus is saying, Father, the hour has come. This is the hour. You remember through Jesus' ministry, uh, so often he, he was, you know, uh, you know, his time had not come. Uh, his hour had not come. Repeatedly, we find that through the Gospels, right up until we get to Palm Sunday. And that's the one day in Jesus' ministry when he allows people to worship him as king. He accepts this praise and this, this, this adoration from the masses um, because that was the hour. That was the appointed time as had been pinpointed by Daniel to the very day that the Messiah would come. And all through his ministry, Jesus had not allowed himself. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? They wanted to take him and make him a king. And he walked away. He wouldn't let them do it. And on the other occasions, we find that they, they tried to take Jesus, but no man could touch him. Strange, bizarre goings-on. And again, um, Jesus continually, uh, when he did miracles, see thou tell no man. Well, wasn't the purpose of the Messiah to let people know that he was there? Well, it was, but not until the appointed time. And that appointed time was the day that Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would come. And again, John 12 gives us that. He says, the hour is now come. And that hour, we're not talking necessarily a 60-minute a, a hour. We're talking a, a, a very fun, a short, defined period of time. And this is this whole last week that we're dealing with here. And Jesus has come right now to, if you like, the, the precipice. Just we're waiting for, uh, for Judas and his soldiers now to come out. Um, Jesus has got to this point. And he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Again, hallowed be thy name. Our Father, 
which are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus is praying that God will be glorified as Jesus also uh, is going to be glorified. And, you know, viewed in a, in a literal sense, it was probably less than an hour or so before Judas arrived here. Um, and the next 72 hours or so were actually going to be a time when Jesus would, would accomplish that for which he will be glorified for all eternity. Verse 2 then, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now we see here that God is saying that he's, uh, Jesus is saying that God had given him power over all flesh. The, this is parallel with thy kingdom come because we find in, in Psalm 2 and uh, Revelation 2.7 um, that Jesus will reign with a rod of iron. He's been given all power. All judgment is committed unto the Son. This is all about this kingdom that is coming. And verse 3, therefore, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou uh, me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Parallels with thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Jesus saying, I've done your will. You know, thy will be done, Lord. I have done your will. I've finished the work which you gave me to do. And again, it's reiteration that God would be glorified through all these things as well. Now, it's interesting. Jesus talks here about glorify thou me with thy own self, with the glory which I have with thee. This is just an incredible declaration of his deity. Can you imagine any human being actually making this statement? I mean, all through the Gospel of John, we find that John is continually stating that Jesus is God in so many ways through the Gospel. And this is one of them. Jesus says, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Could you imagine a man saying that? It would be blasphemy. The only way for this to be a true statement is if Jesus indeed is God, that Jesus was pre-existent. He was there with the Father before the world was. And that he had the glory of the Father. Incredible statement and declaration of Jesus' deity. And this is all part of God's plan from before the foundation of the world. There's nothing accidental about this or haphazard. Now, Jesus had accomplished the work which the Father had given him to do. In contrast, Moses did not enter the land. Joshua did not fully conquer the enemy. David did not build the temple. And we could go through the whole of the Old Testament and we'll find a catalogue of people that didn't complete the work. In the New Testament we find we've got Paul who, yes, finished the race, but he didn't complete the work. The work was an ongoing work. Only Christ has completed the work assigned him by the Father, and hence there is salvation in no other name. He completed that which was given him, and this is what he's saying. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the only one so far that has done that. The other thing here is Jesus talking about this restoring the glory um, that he had before the world was. Now this is interesting as well, because if we just compare the Last Supper, uh, where we find John reclines onto Jesus, he kind of lays on him, and compare that with Revelation chapter 1 where John falls at his feet. You see, after Jesus had gone through the crucifixion, the resurrection, 
He's then in his glorified form, or at least after his return to the Father, he's then in his glorified form. And as John sees him in the beginning of the, the book of Revelation, it's yes, it's the same person, but this has been this huge transformation. And, and John looks upon this one who is just brilliant in his brightness and just incredible that we have a great uh, detailed explanation in Revelation and also we find in Daniel as well. And we see this, this contrast between Jesus who came to suffer for us and the one who will come back and reign as King of kings and Lord of, all, Lord of lords. You, we all know the Sunday school Jesus. I think you know what I'm talking about. But do we know him as Alpha and Omega? Do we know him as the one that John saw on Patmos? Give us this day our daily bread. You know, Jesus' meat was to do God's will. Uh, that's what we're told in John 4.34. Also told that man shall not live by bread alone, but by God's word. Well, again, this this fits beautifully in this model that Jesus gives us. Again, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Verse 6 of John 17, we read, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Uh, they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have, sure, have known surely that I come from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now, Jesus, in a sense here, is not praying for himself, give us this daily, this daily, uh, our daily bread. He's praying on behalf of the disciples that the Lord would give to them this bread. And he's saying that, you know, that I have given them your word. Uh, verse 8 again, for I have given them, uh, given unto them the words which you gave me. That really is our bread. We, we often tend to think of it in our uh, natural sense of the provision, the things we need on a daily basis. But really it's speaking of that which is spiritual. That's the bread we need. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus goes on, verse 9, to say, I pray for them. Jesus couldn't pray for his own sins to be forgiven, but he prays for us. He says, I pray for them. And specifically, I say us because at this point he's still specifically praying for the disciples. We'll move on to us in a moment. But he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus, as I say, couldn't pray for his own sins to be forgiven, but he's praying for those that are his, those that need more than anything, the Saviour, to intercede for them. And Jesus here is saying that they are mine. And then verse 11, uh, headed, lead us not into temptation. We read verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That is, if anything, that prayer that lead us not into temptation. Jesus is saying, look, you know, these were mine while I was in the world, but now I'm committing them unto you, Heavenly Father. And I'm praying that you would keep them, garrison them. That's the, the word in the, the Greek. Uh, it, it, it implies this kind of fortress, uh, this wall of protection. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That scripture in reference there, uh, we find Psalm um, 41, verse 9, also Psalm 109, um, uh, kind of both duly uh, referenced there. We carry on, and now 
come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them. We were talking about this this morning. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You know, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, because we're told, Paul tells us, they're foolishness to him. They're spiritually discerned. And the world cannot comprehend or understand why why would we turn out on a Sunday evening when it's damp and cold outside and come to church? Well, it's because we know that there is so much more than just getting up on a Monday morning, going to work, coming home, getting up, coming home, getting to a Friday, fuse the weekend, wash the car, you know, go to Tesco's, do what we do. The world, there's so much more to life than that. And when we know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, when we know that he's purchased us, that he's forgiven us, he's given us new life, the joy that we can have, you know, now I come to you that these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In First uh, John, John again comments, uh, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. You know, just as Jesus has said, you know, that we're not in the world. We're not part of this world system anymore. There was once a time that we were. We were uh, blinded by the God of this world. But now we've been set free from that. We now have a different father. We've been adopted into God's family. Carrying on this, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Jesus says, I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from the evil. Okay, Jesus had kept his own while he was in the world. And he now is passing that care of all those who would follow him on to the Father, uh, as we were saying. And, you know, it's interesting here that he's, Jesus says that they're not to take them out of the world. You know, why this prayer? You know, I, I've often wondered, you know, Jesus could have removed us from the moment of the resurrection onwards. We belong to him. We've been purchased. We've been paid for. If God wanted to, he would be justified and right to do so if he wanted to take us out of the world right now and we can go be with the Father and we could avoid all the, the temptation and the problems and the, the difficulties we experience, you know, and it would remove the possibility of backsliding. You know, Jesus could take us right now to be with him. Why doesn't he do that? For a very important reason. It's because we're being trained for a big event. That event is what we refer to as the millennium. And, you know, probability beyond that as well. Uh, but we're told specifically of things to do with the millennial reign of Christ. And we're told again in Revelation um, that Jesus wants us to become overcomers. Now, I think you'll agree it's very difficult to be an overcomer if there's nothing to overcome. You see, Jesus has left us to uh, be trained by the circumstances we face. There's a, a great book by a guy, I think the name is uh, Paul Bilheimer, called Destined for the Throne. And uh, he, he just really makes the point that we've been left here for the reason of being trained for all that God has for us. Now, we don't see it. We don't understand all that's, uh, that's coming. Have, have any of you... I don't often uh, like to, to quote films because there's not a lot in the, in the world that's uh, good, but actually it's a, it's a useful illustration. Have anybody seen the film The Karate Kid? Some of you may have seen it. There's a, there's a bit of the, the point of the film. There's this, this young lad who's getting bullied and everything else, and he meets this um, Japanese chap who starts to teach him. Yes, you've got it, yeah. He starts to teach him um, how to, to, to do karate and things. And 
I'm not advocating this at all. I'm just simply using this as an illustration. But this kid goes through these, these routines that he gets so bored of. He has to, he's kind of told to clean the car and he has to wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And he's just doing these motions and he has to do it in a particular way. And he gets very tired and fed up of it. But toward the end of the film, as he's being trained, he starts to realise that the things he's been doing are actually, he's been training his, his, his brain and his muscles to, to work in a particular way. And all of a sudden, he realises the benefit of that which he's been doing, of the training. There's probably many other examples we could use to illustrate that same kind of point. Poor example, but hopefully it kind of gets across that we have no idea of what God has yet for us of all the things that God would like to, 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 would like to use us for in the coming kingdom. And the things that God puts us through now, the, the things that we just don't understand, they don't make sense to us. God has a plan and a purpose. Do we believe, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good? Do we believe that or not? Because when we look at some of the things that happen in our lives, we think, well, how did that help? How did that benefit me in any way whatsoever? It's all part of God's training. Jesus wants us to be overcomers. And this is why, verse 15 here, I pray not that God would take them, that the Father would take us out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. Now that's the key. That we're left here to be trained, but Jesus is praying to the Father that we be kept from the evil. You know, we've got a whole bunch of Christians in different denominations that see their mission to lock themselves away. Matthew 5, 13 and 14 tell us, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its saviour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. That's the way we're to be. We're to be Shining lights that the world looks at and sees. Neither do men like light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. Makes sense. And gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Now, again, you know, we're to be left in the world for this training for us, but not just for the training, but also so that we may bear light and be a witness to those that are around us. The whole idea of shutting ourselves away is not really found in Scripture. In Philippians 2, 14 to 15, it says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's a great verse for any church. Let me read that again. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Just uh, going off track a little bit, but it's just so important because, you know, maybe we're asked to do something. Maybe we're given a particular task and we feel that, well, why should I be doing that, you know? Well, as we were looking, servanthood is a basic requirement for discipleship. And we've got to remember that when we're doing these things, we're doing it unto the Lord. I've commented before, you know, if the Lord gives you the job of cleaning the loose, then you've given, been given a position far higher than you actually deserve. You know, we don't deserve anything. And if God gives us opportunity to serve him, and that's the way we need to view it, we're not necessarily serving each other, although obviously that's part of it. We're serving the Lord. That's what we're doing. And whatever the role we're given, you know, however insignificant we may feel it is, then, you know, we need to do that to the best of our ability, as we're told we should do all things as unto the Lord. It's interesting, uh, back in deal we've been going through numbers and I've been amazed at the details, uh, certainly in the opening uh, five, six chapters of numbers and how we have the order in the camp and all these things and everybody had a particular place 
Everybody had their, their allotment, their, the place where they had to camp. You know, with the, the tabernacle, when they were to pack the tabernacle up and to move it on, everybody had their particular jobs. Each of the, the, the sons of, um, of Levi, um, yeah, they all had their various roles. And if somebody thought, oh, I can't be bothered, you know, why should I? I all I do is pull that tent peg out and then we get there and I put that tent peg back in and I... You know, and decides he's not going to bother. Next time they set the tabernacle up, Moses is going, what, what, who, who, where's the tent peg gone? And the guy thinks, well, well, nobody really noticed it. Well, we can't put the tabernacle up without the tent peg. You know, it's going to fall over. What we may see as something that's unimportant can really, really have a big impact. For those of you in a fellowship that have the, the ministry of encouragement, use it. Exercise it. Those of you who have the gift of hospitality, Exercise it, use it. For those who have whatever ministry within a church, use it. And as this verse says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. You know, we've been given an incredible privilege to be part of God's family. As I said, we were once under a different father, being the devil. But we've now been adopted into God's family. And we're called sons of God. We're given that position of the firstborn. Just a little bit I inserted there. That wasn't part of the study, but that was a freebie. Verse 15. Uh, No, that was what we were looking at, so let's carry on. Oh, sorry. The point of that verse was to go on to verse 15, which says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And this is it. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is why we've been left. This is why Jesus prays that the Father would not take us out of the world, but that we'd be left in the world. Jesus then says, verse 16. But they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Philippians 3.20, we're told clearly that our citizenship is in heaven. We have maybe a, a visa so that we can stay in this country for a time, but really this is, this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, that's where we belong. And then we get on to fantastic verse, verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. And then Jesus makes the comment, thy word is truth. And I'm grateful to Jesus that he says this because it really deals with so many issues. You know, people argue and debate over the Bible. There's the, uh, the Jesus seminar in America where they, they vote on the things that Jesus actually said and they decide which things he did say and which things he didn't say. You know, and they're supposed to be these wonderful scholars. And Jesus makes it very clear. Thy word is truth. So therefore, if it's in the Bible, it's true. Thy word is truth. It's such a, a simple statement But then we're told also that we are to be sanctified through thy truth and that actually it's God's word that will sanctify us. It's God's word that will set us apart. So we're sanctified by the word. Now, Pilate asks this incredible question, a great question, what is truth? When Jesus is speaking to him and um, Jesus tells him that his kingdom is not of this world, Pilate says, what is truth to him? But this is the definitive answer, that God's word is truth. Now this could lead us on to, and I'm borrowing some phrases from Chuck Misley here, you'll probably recognise them, but the subject of epistemology, the, the study of knowledge, its scope and its limits. You know, what is true? How do we actually know anything? Think about the things you know, the things you believe, the things you assume are true. How do you know it's true? What's your basis for that reasoning? What is the basis for, for what you believe? Now ultimately... If you think it through, it's going to come down to evidence. You believe what you believe because you have some sort of evidence to support that position. 
Okay, there's two types of evidence, really. We've got empirical. Okay, that's the stuff that we can verify, we can do tests, we can check it out. And then we've got faith-based. Now, most of the things that we believe are faith-based. We find that they're things that we can't personally verify. They're things that we've been told by somebody else. Uh, we've accepted another's belief. Now, particularly that will be our parents. Our parents tell us something, we believe it's true. My dad, when I was younger, told me that Charlton were the best football team in the world. I've since discovered there's a bit of artistic license in that. They're an okay football team, depending on who you compare them with. All right, they're not very good, but anyway. But we, we take things from our parents and we believe, they, believe them to be true. But then we go on and then our school teachers teach us. And again, we assume those things are true. We had a situation at church recently where somebody came home and they were a little bit perturbed because their school teacher told them that Moses never led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they didn't cross the Red Sea. This uh, young person that's been coming to our Sunday school at church was very concerned about this. They went and asked the, the mum and then we had some chats and they've now gone back with maps of um, the Sinai area with the satellite views of you know, Google Earth and everything else. So it would be interesting to see the report that the teacher gives on that one. But, but we do take things that our teacher says you know, when we're going through school. Uh, that then goes on. We have further education. But we also have the media, which very much informs us uh, and, and shapes the things that we, we believe. So these are the, the, the ways that our knowledge uh, is, is brought about. In Romans 12, it's a very interesting verse there. We're told verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. This is interesting. We've got, we should think soberly. Um, Phronio in the Greek, uh, it just simply means to exercise the mind. That's how we're to think, we're to exercise our minds. That word soberly, ice in the Greek, is with intent. We're to exercise our minds with intent. People often accuse Christians of uh, not thinking, of just accepting things and whatever else. But Paul says that we are to think, to exercise the mind with intent. And every man, the measure of faith. Everybody has a measure of faith. And we could we talk about a whole load of different examples of things that we do on the basis of faith. I notice you're all sitting on those chairs. You probably didn't actually think very hard about whether they're going to support you. You didn't check to see whether somebody had actually cut through a bit of the leg. You just assumed, okay, it was a good assumption, it was a logical deduction you made, but you've got faith that those chairs are going to keep you sitting there comfortably. And we do that in so many areas of life. Every time you drive down the road, you have faith that the person on the other side is going to stay on the other side. And so on. Now, we're exalted to think soberly, as Paul just tells us, we saw there, in regard to our faith choices. Now let me just ask you the question, do you believe the Bible is true? Yes, we do. The question we could ask the same thing is, do you have faith in the Bible? Let me ask you, why do you come to church? If you stop and think about it. If somebody asks you in the world, somebody comes up to you and says, why do you go to church? What's your answer going to be? What about, why do you teach your children about God? We read Marla a Bible story every bedtime. In fact, she's got through the whole of the Old Testament already. In English, I'm going to do Hebrew next year. No, no. <laughs> Some things that she's not able to bear yet, but yeah, as I was saying this morning. But why do we teach our children about God? Joy and I had this conversation a while ago. You know, why, why do we teach Marla about God? What's the reason that we have for it? Why do we pray? Why do people pray when they get into some sort of predicament? Why do we live a moral lifestyle? 
What's our reasoning for it? You see, to some degree, we all believe the Bible is true, certainly those that are here this evening. But why? What is the reason we have? Now, we could probably talk about all sorts of variety of reasons, but some common reasons that we actually believe the Bible, because our parents did. Okay, that's, that's probably fair enough. Most of us, uh, or probably a lot of us, have grown up in Christian families, and our parents believe the Bible to be true. Uh, the pastor does. So if the pastor believes it must be true, then that's fine, that's good enough for me. But if somebody asks you personally, is that a good enough answer? Everyone else around me does. Is that good enough? Uh, it must be true because, um, yeah? Although, all the above there, they actually use deductive logic. You're using reasoning to come to the conclusion. You know, you're trusting your parents, so that if your parents do, you, you feel that must be right. Again, you believe and trust your pastor, so, you know, so on. So we're using some kind of logic in those kind of responses, if that's what we would answer. It's just not very good logic. If we're to actually ask the question about how do we really know what we know, our question, is that actually thinking soberly? Is it thinking with intent? What was the basis of the belief of the early church? Interesting question. Just a few scriptures. 2 Peter 1.16. Peter says, Therefore we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. If you're an eyewitness of something, that's pretty conclusive. We find at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke says there, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. This is the basis of the early church. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke again says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he threw the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Luke couldn't have got away with writing that if it had been easily disproved. Luke is writing this at a time that the, the Jews would love to have disproven these things. But Luke is declaring here that there were many infallible proofs of Jesus' resurrection. And this is the foundation. In 1 John 1, one, we read there, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. That's what we refer to as empirical evidence. It's things that have been verified. Now, the question comes, do you trust these people that have passed it down? Well, the evidence for the, the reliability and the authenticity of the New Testament is beyond question. There's all sorts of evidence that we can look at to prove the Bible to be true. We can look at it from a scientific perspective. The Bible starts in the beginning. We know there was a beginning. We could go on down that route for a long time. Geographically, there's all sorts of evidence to substantiate that the Bible is true. Historically, again, overwhelming evidence to prove the Bible is true. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, God, uh, in his uh, graciousness, has placed me, from a working point of view, just around the corner from the British Museum. And it's fantastic. The evidence in there to support and prove that the Bible is true is overwhelming. 
From a prophetical uh, point of view, again, we can prove scripture. Uh, Archaeology uh, is another way we can show. Uh, From an astronomical perspective as well, we can see and verify that that which the Bible says is absolutely true. The fact that the sun is on an orbit around our universe, around the Milky Way, that's now been discovered to be true. That's what the Bible says in Psalm 19. So many other declarations that can be looked at on that one. From a mathematical perspective, people that have looked into the things such as uh, the work that Ivan Pannon did, showing the incredible numerical design in the Bible. We can prove the Bible to be true in all of these regards. Again, coming back to what Jesus had said, thy word is truth. We need not have any doubt. Just one thing I'd like to share with you very quickly in this regard On a historical basis, some of you may have heard of a chap called uh, Robert D. Wilson. Uh, I just love this. I just want to read it to you this evening. He wrote a book called Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament. Now, this chap, Robert Wilson, he could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. Some of us struggle with just one English language. At 25 years old, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. That's pretty impressive. He had memorized the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. That's some going. He also had many of the Old Testament books memorized in Hebrew. He says this, For 45 years continuously, I have devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament in all of its languages, in all of its archaeology, in all of its translations. The critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claims to themselves all knowledge, all virtue, all love of the truth. And one of their favourite phrases is, all scholars agree. Well, when a man says that, I wish to know who the scholars are and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make an attack on the Old Testament on the ground of evidence that I cannot investigate. After I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. There are about 1,250,000 of them, if you wanted to know. It took me many years to achieve my task, as I'm sure it did. He said, I had to observe variations in the text, in the manuscripts, notes of the Masoretes and all their various versions, parallel passages and contextual emendations of critics. And then I had to classify the results of every character, every consonant, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science, something that is based on evidence and not opinion. The results of those 45 years of study which I have given to the text, has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. That's the kind of person I want to trust. You know, They've, they've really dug into it and they come up with that kind of conclusion. He goes on, he says, For example, to illustrate his accuracy, there are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned, not only in the Bible, but also on monuments we've uncovered in their own time. There are 195 consonants in those 29 proper names. Yet we find that in the documents of the Hebrew Old Testament, there are only two consonants of the 195 that have ever been called into question. The names are all in exactly the same way as they've been inscribed on their monuments, which archaeologists have dated and discovered. Some of these go back 4,000 years. Compare this accuracy with the greatest scholar of his age, the librarian Alexander in Egypt, around about 200 BC. He compiled a catalogue of the kings of Egypt, 38 in all. Of the entire number, only three or four were recognisable. He also made a list of the kings of Assyria. And in only one case can we tell who he's talking about. And that one's not spelt correctly. 
or take Ptolemy, who drew up a register of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is, spelled, is properly spelled. You could not make them out at all if you did not know some of the outside sources. If anyone talks about the Bible, ask him about the kings mentioned in it. There are 29 kings referred to, 10 different countries among these 29, all of which are included in the Bible and on the monuments. That's things we found, you know, dug up. Every one of these is given their right name in the Bible, their right country, their right place, uh, sorry, the right place in correct chronological order. Think what this means. Jesus said, thy word is truth. We can prove it. It can be verified. You know, when people ask you, why do you go to church? Because I believe the Bible. Why do you teach your children? Because I believe the Bible. Why do you pray? Because I believe the Bible. Let them have it out with the Bible. Don't get into some silly debate over some other issue. The bottom line is, I believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, why on earth not? You look at these people, people like Josh McDowell and many others who set about trying to disprove the Bible. Conclusion? They became Christians. And we need to throw people back to the Bible. Jesus said, thy word is truth. When we get this, this issue of what is true, what's not true, what do we believe, what don't we believe, bring it back to the word of God. Verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world... Even so, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through thy truth. Okay. Jesus, this is interesting, because Jesus is saying he sanctifies, he sets himself apart as he's calling for his disciples to be set apart. And as God, Jesus did not need to sanctify himself, obviously. But as a man, in order that he might save us, he did. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, though he were a son... Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, i.e. sanctified, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. Again, we read that he was tempted in all points, as we are yet without sin. Um, As Oswald Chambers puts it, our Lord transformed, transformed innocence into holiness by a series of moral choices. Jesus sanctified himself. He set himself apart for his Father in order that He could go through with what he went through to purchase us. For thine is the kingdom. Jesus says, uh, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's you and I, folks. That's us sitting here this evening. Jesus here prays for all those who would believe based upon the word and the teaching of the disciples. You know, the the kingdom, um, which is in view here, this is, Jesus is part of the, the, the Lord's Prayer as we refer to it, the Disciples' Prayer, however you want to rephrase it, phrase it. For thy kingdom come. The kingdom is all about the subjects of that kingdom. And Jesus here is praying for all those who will be part of that kingdom. Again, it's all disciples throughout all ages here that are in view. And the power. Here we go. That they may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This, we see the unity here in the Godhead. And this, this in a sense, is that power. There's, there's an incredible power in unity. Uh, it's what God calls for um, for us. We have it in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and the psalm goes on. But again, this uh, incredible power uh, that we find in unity, and Jesus is talking about the unity in the Godhead. Uh, and again, our unity is not based in this uh, 
an agreement to agree is based upon the word of God and the glory. Okay, as we get to the end of this, this prayer. And Jesus says, And the glory which thou gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou, thou hast loved them as uh, thou hast loved me. Father, just sorry, that's amazing that Jesus is praying here that the world will see that as the Father will love us as he loved Jesus. That's the love that's being referred to here. Incredible. Verse 24, Father, I will that thou also whom thou givest me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. I think that's an echo of what we read in John 14 where Jesus talks about the time that he's going to come Again, to receive us to himself and take us to the place he's been, been preparing for us. And Jesus is there saying that he wants us to be with him where he is and we will see his glory. What an incredible time that will be forever. Hmm. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. And the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, we have this eternal declaration here. This forever will know the love of the Father uh, and of Christ dwelling in us. Uh, lots of other scriptures we could refer to. And it's going to be for eternity. Uh, I've declared unto them thy name and will declare it. This is an ongoing thing. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So we come to the end of the study. Again, just to remind you of that Verse in Revelation 3.21, Jesus there says, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. You know, that prayer is an incredible prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples. Even though he's in this time of, of mental anguish, he prays for his disciples, both then and all those that would follow after. And again, I think it's important that we, we see there that Jesus himself uses this model. It would be a separate study on its own just to go through that model and see how it applies to us. But just as a kind of a heads up, this is the way I try personally and pray. That when I pray, I start with our Father. Now the first thing there is our. And I'm reminded that I'm part of a family of believers around the world. And I'm reminded that many of those are suffering. Many of those have been a real blessing to me. I pray for them. People here, such a blessing to me and to my family and to folks back in Deal. That's the R that we're referring to, our. But then it's our Father. God is an incredible Father. And we start to realise that, that he's a loving Father. He cares about us. And as we go through our Father who art in heaven, we realise that God's perspective is so different from ours. And we go through each step of that, use them as bullet points, it's not the prayer itself. They're bullet points to trigger what you're going to pray. Guarantee you, by the time you get to give us this day, the things you would have asked for, you're not going to need to ask for anymore because you've realised that actually, as a loving Father who's on the throne in heaven, praying that his will be done, actually, Lord, I don't really mind what happens today. I'm going for this interview or whatever else, and I don't mind if I get it or not because I know you're in charge. So often we go about prayer with the Lord give us this day and we list all the things we want. But we don't go about it the way that we've been instructed to go about it by putting our Father at the top of that list, realising that he's a Father, realising that he's in heaven, he's in complete control. 
praying for his will to be done, not our will. And as you go through every bullet point on that list, it's a great trigger for us to pray and to use as an aid to, to pray in the same way. Not only that Jesus said we should pray, but I think as we've seen this evening, he himself uses that basic model to pray from.